<clears throat> How many of you have seen a movie or read a book or watched a TV show that had a horrible ending? Anybody? I mentioned Seinfeld earlier. Do you, you remember how Seinfeld ended? It was like, that was it. That was how it ended. What? It was a weird ending. Is anybody, has anybody ever been satisfied with kind of a weird ending like that? Anybody like that? Anybody's mind thinks that way? Some of you, yeah, okay. Not, not very many though, right? What do we like? We like an ending that provides closure. We sit there for, you know, 94 minutes in the movie theater and we watch a movie and we want it to come to a good ending. We want it to have some sort of conclusion. You get to the end of your Netflix binge and you want that last episode in season 15 that you've been watching all night long. You want that to have a good ending, right? You've, you've got to have closure. You, you, you want to make sure that an ending, an ending to, a, to a show or, or a, a movie or a book or whatever has some, some hope at the end. You know, there, there's a little bit of redemption that's possible here. And boy, these characters have been through a lot and, and it hasn't always been good. But I, I feel okay about it as it ends. I, I recognize it's not all just doom and gloom. And, and then we really like the stories, I think, especially when you're a child and you're reading these and they lived happily ever after. You know, we, we like that. There's just, there's something about that. Oh yeah, well good. I, you know, I'm glad. I mean, they, it's been tough on them and I'm glad that it, that they lived happily ever after. I think for most of us, anything other than closure or hope or a happily ever after ending, it kind of leaves us a little bit frustrated, maybe, maybe a little confused and sometimes even angry at the people that wrote the story. Why did you do that? I didn't like that ending. Why did you kill off that character that I've been following for 14 seasons? You know, I'm, what, what is it? Why did you do that? Today, we're going to look briefly at the end of the story. The very end of the Bible's story as God has revealed it. Uh, really what it is, it's a new beginning. It's the, it's the beginning of the story, but it's the end of the story as we will know it, as the new one begins. Now, the book of Revelation is where we'll, we'll look this morning. And when I even say the book of Revelation, you start thinking about some crazy stuff if you know anything about the book of Revelation. It, it is a, a book that is about things that will happen. But it is also, and maybe even primarily, a, a book about what it is that we should do while we wait for those things to happen. Uh, Revelation is not just about the end of time, though it certainly includes that. Originally, the book was written uh, to a group of people in first century Israel, first century Roman Empire, really, that were struggling because they were under serious persecution. And so this book was written to them to help them understand, here's how the story ends. Here's what happens. Here's what we know to be true. Jesus showed up to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos as John has been exiled for his faith. And he's there and he receives this vision from Jesus himself. Uh, so the Savior shows up to him. John writes it all down. And he records everything that he sees. And, and, and at first it really seems very odd to us, doesn't it? If you've read the book of Revelation or you know anything about it, maybe you got to a certain point point, you just stopped reading. That doesn't make any sense. What in the world is that? That's spooky. That's weird. What's going to happen? Maybe it's freaked you out. Maybe it's intrigued you. Some of you have gotten really into the study of the book of Revelation. And the, the point is, is not just the, the, the crazy symbolism that we have, but that's what we've got in Revelation, a book of symbols. But John saw a lot of things that for us, 
us maybe are difficult to understand, but I think what he saw, it can be summed up, at least I'm going to try this morning, into one sentence. And that's what I'm going to try, is to give you the book of Revelation in one sentence. Now the series that we've been in, we started back in January, we end today. And some of you said, amen to that. Bible stories you thought you knew. 44 of these that we've looked at. And, and I think it's fitting. I, I, I mentioned to, to Hank, my son, uh, he, he, his, his baseball number is 44. My, my dad's old number was 44. Hank Aaron was his favorite player and a little bit of Hank's namesake. And so 44, it's just a number of completion. How about that? And so we're, we're done today with the 44th sermon in this series. And we've been looking at how does the Bible's story fit together? Typically, when you're younger, you get Sunday school lessons and you, you learn these different stories and you know a lot of things that seem to be individually related or they seem to be good moral stories. Well, this is how you should act and so on. But the Bible is one big story with individual episodes. And so that's what we've been looking at. So today we'll tie it together and, and get to the end of the story seeing what, what John saw. So if you got your Bible handy, I want you to turn toward the end of the book of Revelation. Chapter 21 is where we'll start, and we're going to spend some time in chapter 21 and chapter 1. So at the end and the beginning, which seems fitting, we're going to bookend this particular Bible book by looking at its, uh, toward, toward its end and toward its beginning. Revelation is the very last book in the, in the Bible. So if you, if you get to the concordance or the maps, you're close. Turn a little bit back, just a tad. So what I'm going, to, I'm going to try to sum this up, as I said, in, in one sentence. Something that I hope that you'll remember as you move forward, remembering what we get from uh, the great truth of the book Revelation. So the first part of this sentence, I'm going to give you the first part, and we'll look, we'll look at the scripture where it comes from. The first part is that there's a lot wrong with our world. There's a lot wrong with our world. You know that. You understand that. But So let's look a little bit. Revelation chapter 21, we're going to look at verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 8. <clears throat> John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will exist no longer. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the thirsty from the spring of water of living water as a gift. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now stop there. John is hearing from God, and he is writing these things down, and he explains a little bit about what will be no more, which if you invert that, shows us what is right now. What we have is a world that is really messed up. It, it always has been, by the way. Since Genesis chapter 3, the world has been messed up. It has not simply all of a sudden gotten messed up. It has always been really messed up. And John kind of summarizes it here. He talks about some of the things that are currently wrong with the world. When he talks about the sea, the, the oceans, in fact, it would have been the sea. They would have thought of the Mediterranean Sea. The Hebrew people were terrified of the water. 
Because it all for them symbolizes storms and darkness and danger. And so there's this evil that exists in the world represented by the sea that John talks about. Then in verse 4 he talks about sorrow and all the things that go with it and all the things that cause sorrow. We experience those things. Verse 7 he says there are unmet needs. He talks about people being thirsty. And then verse 8, he lists all these different kinds of people who, who, are, who are sinners and whose sin has caused a variety of, of different situations and so on. And so we see John is just laying out, one day these things won't exist, but he's also telling us, well, we recognize they do exist. I, I want you to, to flip back just a little bit to 2 Timothy. Hold your place in Revelation, and then flip back just a tad to 2 Timothy. If you go to the left a little bit, uh, you'll see you'll come up on 2 Timothy. I want to give you a little bit more of what we know is wrong with our world from what Paul wrote to his understudy, to the guy who was was his protege, really. And he would talk about, in verses 1 through 5, what else we know is wrong with our world. Look at it, chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And anytime you don't know where something is in the Bible, by all means, just go to the table of contents, look it up. Learn where stuff is, that's how you learn it, no big deal. Paul says this, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self. Listen, listen to this list. Tell me if this is not, this is not true uh, in, in people of all time, really. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. None of those people are here. None of them sitting on the front row right now. That's why yeah, I got you. Anyway, anyway, disobedient parents, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of religion but denying its power. And he says, avoid these people. Now, we can pick on the young people for being disobedient to parents, but there's only one really about them. The rest are about us. Know what I mean? Man. Things are not good in our world. And you see all these different people that are represented. And it's interesting that he gets there in verse 5 and he says, holding to the form of religion but denying its power. Do you know what he's saying about some of those people? They're sitting in church every week. They're sitting in church every single week. It just got real quiet. That's weird. Man. They're playing the game of religion. They're sort of playing along. Well, this is what I should do because I I live in this community and, well, it's Christmas or whatever. And I I play along. And he says, yet these folks are still just as messed up as they ever were. All that to say from Revelation and 2 Timothy that our world is really messed up. Now, let me ask you, how how does the, the stuff that's wrong with our world, how does it make you feel? I mean, really, when you look around and you say, gosh, you know, I just I watch the news. I mean, it's all bad news. You know, I see these issues. I see these events that take place. How, how, does, it, how does it make you feel to know that there's so much wrong with our world? For some of you, it's made you absolutely miserable. You are miserable. I mean, really, you, you, you put on a good show, but you're, you're torn up. You're miserable. For others, you're just angry. I, I'm just so mad about what's happening in our world today. I'm just, I don't, I, I'm just, I'm angry at those people who are causing it. For others, you're hopeless. I don't know what to do. I, I give up. 
Because no matter what we try, you just, you know, how, how, does it, how does it make you feel to know that our world is such a messed up place? Now, now I don't want to make it worse, but I want to add the second little part of this sentence, okay? There's a lot wrong with our world. The second part is we can't fix it all. I don't want to, I don't want to make things worse for you this morning, but maybe I will for a minute. People have tried, by the way. They've tried to fix it all. They, they've thought that we can solve our problems through our intellect or, or through our discoveries, our initiative, or, or getting people on board with progress or whatever, advancements in science and technology and you know, economic development and, and social organization. I mean, whatever, all that stuff. People have boy, they've really tried to fix the problems of the world. But, but I don't know about you, but if I look over the 20th century and into the 21st century... And we think we are so sophisticated. We've emerged from the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. And boy, here we are. It's such an enlightened, sophisticated people. And what do we see? All we did in the 20th century was kill each other. Think about it. That's all we did. All the world did was kill each other. So here we are, so advanced, so sophisticated, so smart, so incredibly progressive. And all we do is kill each other. Think about it. We still have wars and murders and thieves and hatred and cheating and lying. We still have racism and poverty and crime and brokenness and anxiety and depression. We can't fix our own problems. You understand what I'm getting at here? We can try, and lots of folks have said, well, if you just do this, then no, we, we, we can't fix them. What does that mean? We've been lied to. We've been told that humans have all the answers. And when things don't change because, well, you know, that should have worked, then we're crushed. Because what we've believed is that paradise, whatever that may be for us, is just one scientific discovery, one political election cycle, one pill away. That's what we've been sold. And it's a lie. There are some things that we just can't fix. We still die. And evil still exists. And we can't do anything about it. So all of our great ideas can't fix all of our problems. So how does that make you feel? (laughs) More miserable? Angrier? More hopeless, maybe? Now some people would leave the story right there. They just want you to walk away from church feeling so, you know, I don't like this world and this world's not my home and boy, I can't wait to get to heaven and all those things may be legitimate, but that's not exactly the full message of what needs to be preached because the next part, even though there's a lot wrong with our world and we can't fix it all, the next part is real simple, but Jesus wins. Now that you say, well, whatever. I want to show you. I want you to turn from Revelation 21 to Revelation 1. And we'll go back to 21, so you know. All right? So the first few verses here in the book of Revelation says this in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all he saw. Blessed is the one who reads and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written because the time is near. He's saying there's something to be blessed by, by reading about what's wrong with our world and that we can't fix it, but what he will show us, look at it in verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. 
from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He starts with peace and grace. In the middle of their tribulation, in the middle of their trials, in the middle of their persecution, he says grace and peace to you. How in the world could he say that? He doesn't start with, guys, I'm so sorry for what's going on in your world, and I understand that there's really no answer for it, and I just want you to know I'm there for you. I, I wish it weren't happening. Maybe we'll find out how to keep it from happening in the future too. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He simply starts in the middle of persecution, in the middle of a world that is messed up, and he says grace and peace from Jesus Christ. There's something to be said about that. He doesn't start with all that's wrong, really. He starts with the fact that it's grace and peace from Jesus. It says, the end of verse 5, To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and, and Father... To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen, he says. And then verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is coming, the Almighty. He is declaring a victorious Jesus Christ. He is not saying... That Maybe one day Jesus might do something a little bit about this and help you not be so miserable or maybe show you a way not to be angry or just give you a little bit of hope here and there. Hey, hang in there. It is a, de de a declaration that Jesus is absolutely victorious. Right in the middle of the messed up world that you live in, John says, here's the vision that I've gotten and Jesus wins. He wins. It's not as if he will win. He wins both now and forever. In the past, the present, and the future. He is the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. He wins then, he wins now, he wins in the future. Do you understand what I'm saying? He wins. Now go back to, to Revelation 21. Flip back. I told you we go back there. Some of you are messed up right now. All right. <clears throat> give you fair warning. So if he wins, both in the past on the cross, today in the life of victory in the believer, and one day forever when he returns, what then will things look like? Well, John says it. We've already read it. I'm just going to reference the, the verses again. You can look at it as we go through it. In Revelation 21, he says there will be no more sea, which means there's no more evil. There's no more separation from God. He says one day the physical dwelling will be with God himself. That's who we'll be with in person. There's also going to be no more sorrow or any of the things that cause sorrow. So no more pain and crying and depression and death and all those things. No more unmet needs. He said, I will, I will give the thirsty what they need. Living water. That's not something that we physically drink. It's something that wells up inside of us. Then he says, these folks, these Sinful people will be given a second death. One day there will be no more sin. And so we, we can't fix it all, but Jesus wins. So what does that mean we do? <laughs> what, what, what does it, in the meantime, we still have a life to be lived here in, in the present on this earth, right? We can say, well, Jesus wins. I don't have to do anything. In one sense, that's absolutely true. But in another sense, the Lord has given us things that we need to be a part of and be about until his return. We can't fix it all. What do we do? We, we don't just sit around and wait and sing kumbaya until Jesus comes back. That's not what we do. 
and just huddle up and say, well, we hope this world doesn't bother us. It's not what we do. We don't live in fear. It's not how the, the apostles operated after Jesus' death. Not what the New Testament tells us that we're to be doing. There's a lot wrong with our world. We can't fix it all, but Jesus wins. And I, and I want to give you this, and I want to give you a couple things to kind of go on. The idea, Jesus wins, so, so press on. Now, that's a loaded statement. I'll just tell you, there's a lot in that press on. It's not just grin and bear it. It's not just, well, hope for the best. It's not just make the most of what you can do right now. It's literally press on in the things that Jesus did, in the kingdom that he brought, in the kingdom that he will bring. It is live for the kingdom that has come because it has and live for the kingdom that will come because it will. What is the kingdom of God? It is the rule of God in every area of life. Every single area of life. You mean that? Yep, that too. I overheard a conversation this morning I was very encouraged by. A young woman in our church was talking with another lady and I just happened to pass by and caught about 20 seconds of what they were talking about. I was very encouraged by it because the young lady was saying, you know, it's, it's not Jesus over here in this little compartment and then I do the other stuff over here and I just kind of check off that box. She said, it's Jesus saturating every part of life. It's the kingdom of God. When he absolutely saturates and controls every single aspect of your life, that's how to press on. How is it that I should take hold of the victory Jesus wins? I press on knowing that his kingdom has come. Let him rule every part of my life. Everything that I'm miserable about. Everything that I'm angry about. Everything that I'm hopeless about because this world is so messed up. And I press on knowing that one day, someday, he's going to take care of the issue. One day, someday, it'll all be made right. Not yet, but it will. So I'm going to live as if Jesus has already done what he is going to do. Because if he is the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come, guess what? His future victory was sealed by his past victory, which gives me present victory in the life and the world that I live in now. Press on. Give Jesus every single part of your life. And I will say this. When you do, watch what happens. Watch what happens. The next time, and, I, and listen, for some of you, this is going to be the hardest thing that you do. The next time that you watch the news, watch the news from the perspective of the kingdom of God. I mean that. That's the, some of us, boy, it's so depressing. We see what's wrong. Watch the news from the perspective. What is God doing? How can I join God in his redemptive work in this world until one day he restores it all? What can I do to bring the kingdom of God to this particular area? I know, I'm going to fall off the stage. I know that I can't fix it all. <laughs> I know I can't fix it all, but guess what? I can do something now that mirrors what Jesus did and what he will one day do. How can I be a part of God's work now Waiting on him to do his final work then. That's how we press on. Don't sit around being miserable, being angry, being hopeless. Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? <laughs> Probably not real well, is it? Because you just get more miserable and angrier and more hopeless. Listen, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust him with all the rest. Jesus wins. Press on. It's okay to identify there's things wrong with our world. Okay to say, I can't fix it all. But it's also okay and right to say, Jesus wins. I'm going to go with that. 
And that's how the story ends. That's it. That, that's how the, the series concludes. Not on a downer. Uh, not on a confusing ending. Not wondering what's going to happen. Not frustrated with the author because he didn't write in a, a better happily ever after. Guess what? They lived happily ever after those who know Jesus. That's the end of the story. Do you realize that? And they lived happily ever after with him. That's how the story ends. So my question for you this morning is, which side of history will you be on? Which side? Which one? Choice to make. See how the story ends. See how history unfolds. See what's going to happen. Which side will you be on? Uh, my, my hope and my prayer is that you will simply bow this morning and say, Lord Jesus, you write your story through me. I submit my life to you completely. Saturate me with your kingdom. Even in a world that I don't like, makes me miserable, makes me angry, makes me hopeless. Lord Jesus, you write your story. You write your story of victory through me. What would that look like in your life? Maybe this morning, just as we close in a moment, you'd bow your head and you'd say, Lord Jesus, that's my prayer. For the very first time, Lord, I want to be on your side of history. I want to be, I want to be absolutely certain that I know Jesus. I'm going to surrender everything to him. The Bible tells us to repent of our sins, turn from it, to believe in Jesus as the Son of God who died for our sins and was raised again to give us eternal life. The Bible says, repent, believe. What do I need to do? Repent, believe. Do I need to, to sign a paper? Repent, believe. That's it. And then ultimately let him live his life through you. Let him write his story of victory through you. Let's pray together.